This post-New York Alliance event was recorded live in front of an audience and references video clips to demonstrate some of the concepts. Due to copyright and clearance issues, the audio of these clips has been edited out of the podcast. Welcome to the first music seminar for Music and Post, The Key Players. Um, Music in Post, The Key Players, is brought to you by Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. The Post New York Alliance website is postnewyork.org and we can be found on Twitter at, at Post New York. And just for your reference, this is going to be um, available on iTunes shortly after we record this tonight and you can share it with friends if, it's, if there's information that you think was valuable or that you want to pass along. Um, I'd also like to thank our host for tonight's event, Technicolor Postworks New York, your trusted partner for all local or global entertainment needs. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, my name is Isabel Sederni. I'm a New York-based feature film editor and your host for tonight's event. Tonight, we're proud to offer an in-depth discussion um, offering advice on a smooth music production for film and television and how to help to create a finished soundtrack. The conversation is aimed at helping editors, producers, post supervisors, and others to better understand the complexities of working with music during post. And just to get a sense of who we're talking to, we've got some editors, we've got post supervisors, yes, yes, and producers also. Okay, anybody else? and sound mixer and sound editor coordinators okay great okay so and musicians union excellent hi yeah we were at your house the other time nice to see you yeah okay yeah i'm gonna do some show tunes later so we'll strike that up okay um so uh that's great so we have a really nice mix in the house for everybody to speak to that'll be great now i'd like to introduce our guests each of whom will be presenting a musical example of their work and offering their insights approaches and experiences of working with music in post ian bloom picture editor has worked in feature film production post-production for 16 years spanning such films as chocolat doubt and the born legacy He's collaborated with many top-tier award-winning filmmakers, including editors Tim Squires, John Gilroy, Dylan Tishner, Barbara Tulliver, and Andrew Monshine, writer-directors John Patrick, Shan John Patrick Shanley and M. Night Shyamalan. Is that the way you pronounce Shyamalan? Oh, Shyamalan, oh, there you are. Come on down, Ian. Come on down. You've also worked with producers Akiva Goldsman and Scott Rudin. Okay, I'm just kind of going in the order that we're going to have them talk. That's how I picked. But you're right, ladies first. Uh, well, ladies next. How about that? Uh, Nancy Allen, music editor. Nancy Allen has over 20 years of experience in the film and television industry. She has worked with directors like Roman Polanski, Martin Scorsese, Mike Nichols, Jonathan Demme, Peter Jackson, Darren Aronofsky, John Cameron Mitchell, Paul Haggis, Barry Levinson, and David Frankel, with whom she is currently working on Collateral Beauty. Most recently, she completed the first season of Billions for Showtime. She's been nominated for two Golden Reel Awards, winning for The Lord of the Rings, and was part of the Emmy award-winning team for the sound and music on HBO's Bessie, Nancy Allen. Welcome. <coughs> Jim Black 
is an award-winning music supervisor with over 20 years in the music industry. He has worked on over 90 films and television shows, including Academy Award winners such as Black Swan, The Wrestler, and HBO's Treme and True Detective. He's just finishing up season two of Marco Polo for Netflix and setting up for Amazon Z, the beginning of everything, and season two of Billions for Showtime. Jim, welcome. Thank you for being here. Last but not least, Ben Holiday, film composer. Ben brings more than 15 years of experience composing soundtracks for film. He has worked on films alongside music editor Jennifer Dunnington and composer Howard Shore on such films as Spotlight, Hugo, Shutter Island, The Departed, and The Aviator. Ben recently wrote the orchestral score for the feature film Drawing Home and assisted the Blair Brothers with their score to the punk rock thriller Green Room. Ben. This is your, your, your moment. Great. So <clears throat> what we'll do is um, we're going to start off with a couple of questions for each of our panelists. Then we'll um, uh, have each of them talk through a clip that they worked on and have them kind of discuss their approach and some of the issues that came up and maybe creative challenges that they found solutions to. And then we'll come back for some more questions. Um, so let's start with Ian um, as an editor. What does a um, let's see here. What stage do you what stage do you bring in music <clears throat> to a scene? Um, so there are a couple of different approaches to it. If it's a something that was like written into the script and we know we're doing this, that starts pretty early. Um, I like to cut without music for as long as I possibly can otherwise, uh, unless it's you know something that's like completely unwatchable without music. I try to make decisions completely independent of that. Um, and then only, I usually kind of get to temp score or stuff like that when we start talking about showing the film to people who aren't part of the team. You know, because there's a lot of the, you know, it, it would be a lot to ask any stranger to sit through a rough cut of a film with like no music in it at all. So I will then start to experiment with that stuff. <coughs> so you're finding the rhythm of the film basically is, is why you're not working with music, and that's crucial. So you can develop the character of the film. But also, I mean, at some point, are, are you and the director saying, hey, you know, I feel like we want to kind of tie these two scenes together. Do we want some music? I mean, what, what kind of conversations come up where you're like, ah, let's talk to the composer about creating something for this? Yeah. Well, a lot of times I don't know who the composer is until like way down the line. So um, if we are lucky enough to have that person on board and, and he or she is available to like start kicking around ideas, uh -huh. The sooner the better. I, right. I, lo I love bringing the team on as, as soon as I can. But as an editor, I haven't really been in that world. <laughs> um, and, so. And would you start talking with Nancy and Jim at, at certain points saying like, hey, we're starting to recognize we might want something here to, f to kind of fill out this kind of mood or, and, and what, kind of, what kind of conversations would you guys have? Yeah, and here, absolutely. If if, if someone like these two amazing people are on the, on the film at 
you know, the minute they start, even probably like for weeks before that, I will reach out to them and ask them for ideas. Even, I mean, Nancy and I have done this about six or seven times where I'm like, she sometimes she hasn't even seen the film yet. And I'm like, I'm looking for something quirky uh, in the vein of this, this and this. And Nancy will send me a hundred tracks to just start playing around with Um, well (laughs) you know what I mean Um, and that goes a long way Um, and it also you know the more time I have to lay stuff like that in it kind of communicates what we're looking for and it's a really good like blueprint and then they take it and run with it and you know that's always wonderful when it's out of my hands (laughs) you want to speak to that I I, um Two, two things, what, what Ian said about cutting without music for as long as possible, I just have to say to all of you filmmakers out there, um, when we look at a scene that has been cut with music, as opposed to looking at a scene that has been cut without music, you can feel it. Because the rhythm in the dialogue and the exchanges between the two people sometimes doesn't feel organic. So um, yes, while he's starting to think about music and he's sort of sitting back, uh, it is most important that you spend as much time just with the material because the material, especially if it's shot well and if it's directed well, it will reveal itself to you. We don't always know what we're looking for. Ian might call me and say, I have a scene, it's between these two people, it's a mother and a daughter and they're fighting and it's not sort of an overt kind of tension. It's a very sort of simmering boil tension that's gonna, you know what I mean? Like he's trying to describe that. So we'll talk about a few different flavors and I'll send a few different flavors and it might be three or four weeks later that we discover that that tension is actually about something different. But if you don't allow the picture room to reveal that self to you, to reveal itself to you in that way, you won't see that and you won't discover it. So as much as I'm trying to help them tell the story, I'm also trying to leave room because this is very much an exploratory process and it's constantly evolving, right? I mean, we think we go, we think we're going to go down a rabbit hole and discover one thing. There are so many rabbit holes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And resisting the urge is important because music is a huge crush, crutch, I'm sorry, when, when, a lot of people like to lean on it. Um, mm. I would say, especially directors, um, especially young directors or inexperienced directors. When you lay something in there and it hits the right moments, sometimes accidentally, and you're like, "We're done. This is great. This is the best. This is the best it's ever been." And it, it's, I don't want to call it lazy, but it's also like you're not doing yourself justice, especially with like dialogue. I mean, it's one thing if it's a transition between scenes and you have a bunch of really, you know, scattered scenery and you're just kind of piecing that together to hit the rhythm of a, of a cue that you're not even going to end up using anyway, because it's at this point, it's, it comes from something else. Um, that's one thing, but you know, the, the special dialogue scenes for sure, I will stay away from music for as long as I can to make sure that that scene is, coming across as good as it can until, okay, now we need the support of, of the right music. Hmm. Well, let's talk about your relationship, uh, the relationship, since we've got you guys going a little bit, the relationship between the editor and the music editor. Nancy, tell us a little bit about what a music editor does, like saying you're 
you're working with someone who um, isn't, you know, hasn't worked extensively with a music editor, mm -hmm. what would you explain your role is and how you can help or what what they need to offer you and how you like, to, you know, what the conversation should be like, what, what, what we need to talk Well, this is Jim's favorite story. He's heard it before. I worked with um, a director who had never worked with a music editor and the composer insisted that they finally just, you have to hire a music editor. You have to hire a music editor. And we had no idea what we did. And we met and we had a lovely meeting and he looked at me and he said, so what, what, what does a music editor actually do? And I said, don't worry, <laughs> about three weeks from now you're going to see me become two parts Border Collie and one part Den Mother. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is, um, so it, it really our roles are to, in a, in a literal, uh, literal line, we literally develop a temporary score, which is a score that is derived from existing material whether it's scores that already exist, whether it's um, other d kind of source music, uh, instrumental versions of songs. My chair keeps turning. <laughs> <laughs> instrumental versions of songs, any kind of music that already exists out there. Um, that's the first thing that we do, uh, the temp score. And that's a really interesting thing because what I will, the way I typically approach a temp score is I will choose three or four very key scenes in the film, or what I think are key scenes. Sometimes Ian says, oh, these two, you've got to really look at these two. And then I might think there are two other scenes that are important. And those four or five scenes together sort of represent big signposts along the narrative arc of the film. And I'll try three, four, if I'm really inspired or really confused, sometimes five pieces. And I'll have choices and Ian and the director will come in sometimes Jim is a part of this process at this point in time as well um, and we'll review these things and when we look at these scenes with different kinds of music the director begins to understand the different things that the music will do for the scene and he also begins to understand what it is that he actually needs the music to do for the scene and the best example of that that I have is there was a scene when we were working with Peter Jackson and um, it was maybe the third or fourth revision and Lord of the Rings, it was an action sequence. And um, the composer had sent another version of, you know, sort of an action sequence cue. And it wasn't until, unfortunately for the composer, the third or maybe it was the fourth iteration where Peter finally said, he's scoring the action of the guy running away. I need him to score the anxiety of what he's running away from. That's a big difference. Huge difference. Yeah. And it's gold for the composer. When I can turn around to the composer and I can say, this is what the director is wanting, is needing the music to do at this moment. Is that typically more helpful as a, um, as a kind of Directive? Language? Yeah, to say like, let's talk about the emotional tone of the scene over like any other way to talk about a scene? For us, it is. For us, it's so Definitely. much. Yeah. Because yeah, 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 yeah. it's like, sure. No, I mean, there's so many different ways and, and, and approaches to scoring um, any particular scene. I think we've done so much together, Nancy and I, that it's like what's really exciting is when you can score thoughts, mm. um, internal, internal um, motive, you know, we can, scoring a battle scene, it's big drums, and it gets exciting, and then it goes away. 
the scorecards. And you I always think, end up fighting the sound effects. Yeah. What we truly, I think, always respond to is is when a composer is given the direction to really score the the thought process and thematic material that we're dealing with in the film. And there are definitely certain times where you're you're kind of um, scoring the physicality of something. Yeah. You know, but it's one thing if you think about two guys in a bar brawl. You can score that with lots of different action and rhythm and, you know, hard sounding instruments. Or you can score the guy who's losing his headset or why one of them's so angry. Um, there will be blood. Right. I, th I think Johnny Greenwood did something that was really amazing, which is he made you feel like you had bees in your head. Yeah. That's powerful. And I think that certainly right. many times kind of will transcend the film itself when you can have that type of approach. And in order to get there, I mean, a lot of composers will have their own ideas about what they think the film needs for effective storytelling. Um, sometimes as a music editor, sometimes as a picture editor, sometimes as a music supervisor, we'll see the composer and the director in the same room and we'll, we'll, we'll know they're all talking about the color blue. The director and the composer are talking about the color blue and they think they're saying the same thing. They think they're in total agreement. But we all know that the green. director is talking about like sky blue and the composer is talking some, you know, like navy blue and it's a big difference. So part of what I end up doing after we leave the temp score process is I end up bridging that gap and it's kind of like watercolors. It's kind of like painting with watercolors and you know, getting the two to sort of come together a little bit. Just to go back and to maybe this is something that you can speak to as well. When Jim and I or Ian and Jim and I are talking with the composer and we're talking, or sorry, with the director and we're figuring out what the music should do Having had that experience, using that example of Peter Jackson saying, score the anxiety, not the action, there are a lot of directors, there are a lot of people who, when they're dealing with music, they get a little twitchy because they feel like they have to speak in musical terms. That is the least helpful thing. And I have, I always do this. And as a composer, I think you'll be able to respond to this as well. I let them say whatever they want to say in terms of the musical stuff we need action i need drums drums we need you know and i let them say whatever they want to say and i'm writing it down like okay 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 yes now can i just ask you one more question about what you're talking about what do you want us to be feeling here and they say something that i'm most of the time, I guess, when I write that word down and I tell that to Ben, he's not going to give us drums. <laughs> you know, a lot of times when they're asking for propulsion, they're asking for something to help move the story along. It doesn't literally have to be percussion. It doesn't literally have to be rhythmic. It just has to be something that engages you and pulls you forward. You know, the music can do so many things in so many different ways. It can engage you, pull you in, and turn you around so you're facing the right direction for the next scene. I mean, that's something that Ian really counts on the music to do. If he's created this beautiful transition where you're going from this incredibly complicated emotion and then the next scene is a little bit of comic relief. 
you have to be ready for it. You have to give your viewer permission to shift gears and you have to help them do that. And if my composer doesn't know that that's what we want to do, or if he doesn't have the room to do that, or if he's being told to, you know, propel us into the next scene with drums, we're not doing the film any favors. You know, we need to pull you in and turn you around so you're facing the right way, so you're prepared to receive what's coming next. It's a trust thing, too. Yes. Um, you know, your, your ability to sort of weed through all of that and not ignore it, but give it, put it in its place, and yes. then get to the root of what yes. they really want and get them to say it in a way that isn't ones and zeros yes. or which instrument or where that or piano hit happened. Right. Um, that's, yeah, that, that's, a, that's something that kind of grows organically yeah. as y you trust each other. Yeah. Um, it's part of the dialogue. Yeah. And Jim, you were starting to talk about how you work with Nancy. When does a music supervisor typically get involved? It's oh, a trick question. Okay. Um, I would say the majority of the time at script level. Okay. Uh, early, early. Um, but you know, there are also sometimes, usually right after Thanksgiving, when three films have just gotten to Sundance and they have <laughs> three point five million dollars worth of music. And you get a call. And I get a call, and they're like, um, "So we're going to Sundance." And we have a lot of music, and we didn't clear any. Do you know how to do that? Um, oh so sometimes as late as that, um, because you know, young filmmakers they don't know, yeah. and they're like, "But, but you know, my friend is Eddie Vedder, like cousin's second brother's <laughs> thing." Yeah. yeah, we can't we get that cheap? You can shut that up for us, right? Yeah, so. Um, but I would say that most of the time I get involved at script level, one, to see if there's any on-camera music, two, to maybe do some preliminary research. Some directors love to script in songs. Um, we have worked recently with two amazing filmmakers on a show called Billions, um, where right now I'm sending the music to write the script to. Ah, awesome. Yeah, so it's like some of my, I have had, uh, I worked on a little film called The Wackness, a little hip hop love story thing. And John Levine, great director, he's like, um, you need to make me a playlist because when I shoot these scenes, I want to know what song's going on because I'm going to approach it differently depending on what's in my head. And then others are like, hey, man, I'm tone deaf. Just make it sound really good. And, you know, so it really, there is no rhyme or reason. Um, for me personally, being involved, you know, at script level and pre-production tends to be the most helpful overall. So you've mentioned... Clearing music, on-set music, coming in at the script level and making suggestions or assigning music to certain scenes. To, what are the responsibilities of a music supervisor? That's a long list. And it seems really it starts. Long. It starts usually with being the whipping post because, you know, I'm, I'm the position where art meets commerce, which is always a really strange thing. Um, Part of my job is being creative and fulfilling the vision of the film and the director. Um, what's tricky about music is it's like costume design. Everyone has an opinion on music and clothing. It's subjective. <laughs> there are some folks out there that are like, my taste is supreme. I'm like, yeah, but maybe I didn't grow up in the same neighborhood and I have different taste. 
So I think you need to be able to, to walk all those different lines and understand that music is indeed subjective. I also find a lot of directors and producers will go back to their high school playlist. Oh my God. And because they have an emotional attachment right. to a certain song, right. of course it's gotta be in their film. And I understand that. We all do. It's like, listen, if you could put your high school mixtape in your personal film, it's sort of fun and cool at the same time. Um, I have to be the guy that's like, I know you love Led Zeppelin, but they also cost more than the budget of your film. <laughs> so it's a little bit sad, and I feel like an Eeyore half the time. I'm like, nope, nope, oh. yep, <laughs> nope. Um, and you have to understand part of, you know, there are some supervisors out there less than there used to be. It used to be that a supervisor at times when we were getting big soundtrack deals, um, they could kind of just be the grand creator and not have to worry about the deal making. That might have been left to the studios or a clearance person. I made a very specific choice in my career to always do my deals. Um, because I think as music is subjective, we can all, we're all music supervisors in the room. The rub comes, can you get the song for the right price? Mm -hmm. And when we had more money to play with, it was a lot easier. These days, there's so much content being made. Um, and, you know, I was one of the first supervisors on an Amazon show. And Amazon was saying, no, 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 dude, we're, 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 we're new media. And I'd be like, yeah, but everything's sort of merging, so you're really like TV. And I bet you a dollar that the publishers and the record labels are going to pretty much want the same price as they would for, you know, a cable or a network show. And lo and behold, six months later, we all started kind of getting into this newer, quote-unquote, media. And, yeah, the prices are kind of the same. So, you know, if you spend, I'll make up a number, $20,000 for an HBO thing or a Showtime thing, Amazon, Netflix, they're going to pay kind of a similar thing. So you have to be able to guide them through the budget. Um, you have to be able to guide the filmmakers to a place where what's truly important, what is just like a bar thing in the background where you just want some blues guitars, and what's a really important emotional arc that you're not scoring and you need the perfect song, potentially by a well-known artist so you can tap into kind of the collective memory of the audience. Sometimes you want to do that, and then sometimes obscure is better. Um, you could have a really emotional scene and you could put in a Marvin Gaye song and everyone starts singing along to Marvin Gaye because they love it so much and they stop paying attention to your film. That can be tricky yeah. and we've been there. Um, so, you know, these are the types of things that we sort of lay out a blueprint at the very beginning, knowing what our music budget is, knowing that it can potentially shift. Um, producers can come up with additional money. There's contingency. There's the studio. If they really fall in love with something, they'll pay for it. But you have to be really um, conscientious of you know where that you know the art and the commerce do come together, because the last thing you want to do is if you have a half million dollar music budget, you know send up to the studio a cut that has three point four million. You won't work a lot longer after that. They just don't like it. Yeah. Even if they understand it's a work in progress, you're like, why are you putting all this stuff in? You can never have. So it's just one of those things that you know we all need to be mindful of. Um, and there's different ways to get creative, and you can find great music these days a lot easier than you used to be able to for kind of whatever price point you're working in. Are those relationships that you bring to 
the like the the discussion about budget too like hey i hear that you really want led zeppelin but i know i have a few ideas where considering your budget we may want to you know go in a slightly different direction but give you the same vibe and then you and then you bring in relationships with either publishers or artists or that kind of thing yeah i mean that's really what we do a lot these days and i'll be like listen it doesn't take too long to get a number on something but while we're waiting for that which i already know what it's going to be I truly do. It's like I can almost, I mean, you see me do it. It's a little It's a little weird. It's, it's like I don't know anyone's name, but I can tell you how much a song will cost within probably kind of like 20%. He's usually, he's usually within 10, 10 or 15%. And it's not uncommon for me to get an email with, Nancy, I'm sending you 10 things. You got to make one of them work. Yeah. <laughs> And she does, and that's where the artistry of Nancy comes in. It's she saves me all the time. Well, you know, it's just one of those things where if a director sees, if he sends me ten things, and they're all usually, you you know, you have really great taste, and I think five of them are laying in the scene really well, and if, depending on what the director's tolerance, you know, what his patience is, if I know he's going to look at all five, I line all five up. I mix the hell out of it. Well, for, for my little room... Um, and I present it like it's like this is the real deal. And he starts to relax with the idea of letting go of the Led Zeppelin. It's just if I can get him a baby step away, like if I can get him to hear something that he's like, oh, that's not bad. And I say, listen, let's wait until we see what Jim comes back with, you know. So immediately take the pressure off. He doesn't have to make a choice right then and there, but he's already thinking about it. And he already feels a little bit better about maybe not having it. We do a lot of hand-holding. <laughs> we do. I mean, it's... That's the den mother. Right? That's to- and you got to have a den mother. And and sometimes I'm the den mother, but a lot of the time Nance is the den mother. Because she's in there with the room playing stuff while I'm, like, you know, on the phone, like, cutting deals kind of thing. Um, so that's... It's one way to look at it. And it's, you know, we never want to curb creativity never you just have to make sure that you have an open dialogue and everyone understands that you know there are certain artists that may not even want to license their music there are certain artists that don't even have control over their music and that music is held by publishers and record labels and like the publishing world are some great indie publishers but who owns the big publishing companies banks and all the licensing agents have to make quotas. And for a company, say, as big as Universal, which has the largest catalog of recorded music in the world, guess how many people are overseeing that catalog? Under one dozen. Really? Yeah. That's insane. So you kind of have to have those relationships there. Um, or they just won't get back to you, and you can't be kind of silly with your offers, or they won't work with you again, or it'll just go into the ether. So you have to kind of strike all these different balances. And you go to them, and they're like, hey, what do you think? And it's kind of amazing how a price will change if somebody creatively pitches it. And they're like, well, that was my pitch, and I thought it was really good. All of a sudden, things happen. The earth moves a little bit. So, Jim, I have a question. If you're an editor and... You're, uh, you're in the middle of your rough cut. You don't have any music in there yet. What's the way to avoid putting in the Led Zeppelin in the first place so that temp love doesn't occur? What's a smart way for editors to approach that? Okay, so it's not the most artistic way, um, but I tend to pre-clear a lot of the stuff that I will give to 
Nancy or the editorial or the director, I already know what it's going to cost before I send it. Um, and it takes a little bit longer. And in addition, I'll also just freeform. So I'll kind of have, here's a round of stuff that it's done for X amount of money. And here's some stuff I just love. And I sort of don't know what it's going to cost, but I just loved it. So I had to put it in. And as long as you explain your process to everyone, um, it's kind of a really fun road to discovery. What you don't want to do is temp your film potentially with a bunch of stuff and then you start cutting to it and at the end of the day you can't have it and then the picture changes and as we were talking about earlier it's like you're not doing your film service by cutting to music cut your film first so I think you know working hand-in-hand hand with the supervisor on the project and the music editor just to create options and just say these are just options it just gets everyone thinking creatively and what's amazing about music is every time you throw up a different song or genre or male vocal or female vocal, different things will come out of the picture. And that's really kind of the magic. And sometimes what you get what I call auto-sync, where everything just kind of clicks together and it hits all those beautiful points. And other times it's like you think you're genius and you put it to picture and you're like, I'm sorry, I have to go now. <laughs> no, yeah, didn't work. Um, that's really, really helpful to understand that. Um, and we're talking about temp music for for some of this. As a composer, Ben, how do you feel about temp music? Is that like your arch nemesis, or how do you feel about it? Well, it's a love-hate, and it's both of those simultaneously. So temping is a really useful tool because when you're sitting alone in a room writing music, the worst thing you come up against is unlimited possibilities. And the more limitations you have, you think of limitations being bad in creativity, but actually limitations are, are your friends because it gives you a clear direction of where you're headed, what you want to do. And there's so much room for experimentation, even within a very limited scope. So I, for one, really love temp music, but I don't love temp love, which is temp love is when nothing's going to ever be better than the temp the temp was cut at 3 a.m. by the assistant editor for a uh, preview screening, and nothing will ever rival what's in that temp. And it's also a big problem if you're on a really limited budget and all you can afford is a laptop and a clarinet player, and you're dealing with James Horner's Glory or something like that, which is the Harlem Boys Choir with a 100-piece orchestra, and you're supposed to compete with that. You're sitting alone in a room, and you're like, God. Yeah, well, because so it's yeah. There's some pluses and minuses. I think what to me is most useful about a temp is what sitting with a director, I can ask very specific questions and narrow down what is it that they love about the temp or what do they like about it. So it's not oh yeah, I like that piano and it's got this really nice poignant vibe and I you know I can really kind of narrow down. Well, is it do you think it's that sound you like or is it more the emotion? And you can kind of narrow down with those questions and you'll often find that it's like what Nancy was alluding to. It's not, we all think we're talking about blue, but we're all talking about something else, something different. So uh, yeah, that's the double-edged side with temp. Okay, so I'm going to just play the other side of that for a minute. Whenever I'm working on a film and we're sending out to composers for them to take a look at, I like not to include the temp. Mm -hmm. yeah. The reason 
is yes infinity and beyond is really scary but composers are incredibly creative and sensitive beings and I would love their two cents on it and and then you know sometimes what I'll do is like hey pick a scene or two I don't want you to go write anything this is demoing just pick something that you've done that feels like this film and it's really interesting process for everyone so I've found that the best stuff that I write is when there's no temp. Yeah. Can I build but, this? Oh, sorry. But, you, uh, you build. Yeah, so, but I'm assuming that, I'm presuming that there is a temp. But if, if there is no temp, it is really mm. cool because there is all kinds of things you can do with that. And hopefully you're hiring someone you trust or that you can trust. And that what that means is they've got really good dramatic instincts. And... I really think it's important that you let a composer, you get their take, like he's saying, you get their take on it and you just give it to them and say, all right, give me your, give me your take. It's much like an actor when an actor comes in and is doing an audition at first for a director, directors usually, or casting agent will say, all right, just read it once, do your own thing with it. Cause sometimes things come out of that you, that you never would have thought of. Um, but if there is temp already in there and it's unavoidable that you hear it, I have a love-hate thing going with it, and I think most composers do. Yeah. Um, to, to speak to the whole temp thing, so as a music editor, let me just tell you, so when I am starting a temp, I'm thinking, okay, is this big orchestra? Is this small orchestra? I'm already starting to try to target where I'm going to start looking through my library, which at this point in time is over one terabyte of material. Impressive. It's yeah. inevitable <laughs> that I am not going to listen to every single thing and find the perfect thing. I'm going to do my best to do that. And sometimes I find the silver bullet, which just cracks it wide open. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm really in the target. It doesn't happen that often. The, I mean, a lot of times I feel like my temps serve the film in terms of the road mark, you know, creating the trail across the narrative that Ian is sort of, you know, weaving out, pulling out so carefully. But it is by no means, you know, the organic thing that you want for the picture. The best temps that I've ever done have been the temps where when we know Ben's going to be the composer, Ben reads the script, maybe he sees the first editor's assembly, maybe he doesn't, but he has a strong musical impression and he just writes a suite. Maybe it's four minutes, maybe it's six minutes, maybe it's eight minutes, but it's his musical impression of the film. It can be one aspect of the story. It can be one character. It doesn't matter. It's something that he felt when he read the script or when he saw a scene or whatever. When it, when he, and if he sends me the stems for that, I guarantee you every single time a composer has done that, we have found the kernel of the score. And I am able then to take something that is completely original or organic to this film that I'm trying to tap, and I can weave it in to other existing material. And it goes such a long way for the director not having temp love, 
because he feels that it's inexplicable. I can't describe, but you you've experienced this. Absolutely. I, you know, James Newton Howard does it for all of M Night's films. I mean, that's an amazing blessing to have. Right. Anyone, let alone James Newton Howard, but anyone involved at that stage. It, it's uh, incredible. So like, I'll can I tell a story about what he did for the happening? Go for it. Yeah. So James Newton Howard does that. He he likes to write a suite, and it, you know he his sounds. I mean, when you go to the recording session, it's a little bit of a disappointment because the ninety-piece orchestra oftentimes sounds just marginally better than the demos that he's sent. He's just you know he's that polished, and he does everything himself, and he has a very strong creative impulse. And he saw the happening in a really really rough assembly. And he sent, and Suzanne and I were working on the temp, and he sent this suite. And it was a 12-minute bolero. And it was brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic. And it was like Bernard Herrmann. You know, it's like he gave this whole other dimension to the film, you know, kind of. It was it was a little cheeky. It was really thrilling. It was it was kind of like how I felt when I watched the 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 black and white film The Artist. It was a real like genre send up. It was absolutely delightful. The director didn't go for it, <laughs> sadly. But but I mean, I had the same thing happen on Lady in the Water. Same director. Yes. Same composer. Um, and I was blown. That was the first time I've ever seen I mean it was an exclusive relationship between Knight and James yeah. for a long time and yeah. it's an amazing luxury when that when that stuff starts coming in and it is it's just like it's not cut to anything it's not like use this here it's just this is what I feel when I watch your film and then we we work with it and so by the time you're like really trying to nail it down you already you know what it is yeah you know that it works yeah. and it's I mean, God, I miss that world. <laughs> <laughs> this is really helpful. Um, but l l let's let's watch some clips. Ian, why don't you um, start us off, and I'll move I'll move this aside so we're not in the way, and we might have to move our bodies for a second. But help us uh, walk us through what we're gonna see, and I guess you have three segments here to show us, right? Like I I brought three, but two of them belong to Ben, and I'm gonna leave them for him. Okay. Uh, ben and I, I, I cut a film that Ben was the composer, so I'm, I'm going to let him talk about those. If you want me to start, I would pull up uh, He's Back. This is a quirky neighborhood where all the neighbors are sort of like looking at each other with suspicions and wondering what's going on in the neighbor's yard. And I needed something to sort of capture this moment where this old man comes home from the hospital and everyone wants to know what's going on. And there's also another neighbor who gets a big bag of mail delivered to her door every day and everyone wants to know what's up with that. Um, so we can play it and then I'll talk about it. Great. <laughs> um, Thank, thank you. Uh, so <laughs> there's a lot going on at the same time, trying to establish that all of these things are connected in some way. This is very early in the arc of the story, so you don't really know where anything's going yet. But you weave it all together, and the music is a huge tool for that. Um, I also want to try to give people permission to laugh, because the film sort of opens that old man who sits in the 
lawn chair. Um, the, the, the film opens with him throwing himself in front of a car. So he's, it's a very grim opening to the film, but it's actually like we want people to realize that, you know, laughter is okay. It's just hard to get there after you saw something like that happen. Um, so I am blessed with the music supervisor, Hal Wilner. Um, and he, while his involvement is very sporadic and it's hard to, you know, he's not the kind of person who's gonna come by and like work directly with you, but he will, I, I tell him what we're looking for and he'll send me a bunch of, a grab bag. So I can't take credit for finding this, but I can take credit for where I used it. Um, and then, the, but the the gold here is that ha, has anyone ever heard of moon dog yeah that's moon dog moon dog is mostly well known for being a street musician in like the 50s and 60s he would show up on 53rd and 6th wearing a viking hat and like sometimes not even playing anything just sitting there um silent and uh this is a live performance um, in something that he calls snake time, <laughs> which is a totally irregular timing. This man is actually quoted as saying, I will never die in 4-4 time. Uh, so the oddball, like, off rhythm, which I find amazing for watching these characters just walk around, like dragging a lawn chair down the street and, right. and walking across his yard. Like, the, the way elderly people walk is like perfect for that like irregular timing and I was like oh my god this is this is like this is it um, I mean you uh, so this might be temp love but you know <laughs> give me a composer to to tell this to and this wouldn't happen <laughs> uh, but you know this is that's I think a pretty good example of like you know how you tell people what you're looking for you have the support and I mean Hal is an, an encyclopedia of the eccentric so my library from especially from the 15 years of assisting on huge Hollywood movies is like you know James Horner and James Newton Howard and and you know the household names I don't have I've never heard of Moondog <laughs> um, or anything else that falls into that category beyond what you see in like a Wes Anderson movie, but you can't use that stuff because it's been done and it's, it's, it's just not, it's not our film. So, so at this point you're, it sounds like you're auditioning other composers to, to bring in. The film has gone out to people that uh, Hal has relationships with and, you know, I haven't heard anything yet, but. Yeah, that's where we are. Okay. Is there anything else you want to explain about your process and working with music or you're going to Well, there are to? Yeah, we can I'll pass the torch, but in general like, you know, I always try to temp sensitively. Um I will love, you know, first of all like I I, I want to have a huge understanding of the the means that we have. Like I would never do what Ben was talking about where I would temp with James Horner and leave it to a composer who is doing this with a laptop and a clarinet um, because you'll never get there. Uh, so I'd like to have as much of that established as I can before I even listen to anything, before I even start playing with ideas. Um, so.
And that's a conversation that you just have with the composer? Or, or the producers, or mostly, I mean, I don't have a composer to ha have that conversation with. It's mostly like, we need music in the film. We don't know who the composer is. We can't pay a music editor. We have, you know, mu music supervisor is here, but he's, it's sort of a favor. So it's like, it's all, it's me. Um, and it's me calling in favors from people I know saying, this is what I'm looking for, just send me stuff and I start playing with it. But I won't even listen to something if I feel like it's beyond the world that I live in on the film, so. Gotcha. Yeah. Let's go to Jim, do you have a clip here? So let's, let's talk about some of the work that you've done and how you work with. Um, so I worked on this really cool pulp TV show for Sundance Channel called Happen Leonard. Um, which I loved working on and just great creatives. And what I did is to kind of illustrate a little bit of temp love and a little bit of music that falls out of the budgetary parameters um, is I pulled one of those challenging clips and um, basically what I did is I was sent the temp and they're like, go get the temp. And I couldn't because it was Chris Isaac. Um, <laughs> But what I thought I would do is just show, it was, this is a show set in the 80s, it's set in Texas. Um, let me, and it's just basically, it's your kind of classic standoff. And then we have our heroine who has to make a really big decision. But why don't we play a little bit of uh, Heart Shaped World and then I'll talk a little bit more. Dang each other's wives, silly. Yeah, 
All right, cool. Let's stop that one. Okay, so what a great song. Uh, it's got the 80s going. It's got Chris Isaac going. It's instantly recognizable. It works well for the story. Um, it's got great guitars. That's like a really loud mix. That's just like a working copy, so you can't take any of that into consideration. Um, Chris Isaac owns his own material, and I was like, hey, maybe that'll be cool. Unfortunately, as it turns out, he does own his own material, and he has a really good lawyer these days. <laughs> um, so that fell out. How did, and I was like, oh, man. Because we were kind of holding on. Like, oh, maybe the network will pay for it. And we're kind of holding out and holding out. They're like, nope, you're out. I'm like, okay. So now, being that that was basically the cost of an episode and a half worth of music, I had to get really creative. I'm like, okay, what do I got to do here? Let's try some period stuff um, that we know isn't going to crush us and that we can make a really cool stand for because we know the studio really wants to keep this as a period thing. Um, so I came up with a Smithereens track, um, which is the next one you'll see. And we'll just play it a little bit just to give you a flavor of how it works musically. <laughs> Sorry for the dialogue. Uh, um, so there is the 80s thing that won't break the bank. And what I also love about it is the instrumental, the bass, and the drums, and the guitars, and how that grooves. And it gives the guy, our antagonist soldier, some swagger. Um, and it puts Trudy, who is our heroine, um, kind of at this crossroads. And that was cool. We liked that. Um, and then there was one more, which was not time period, um, but to give you just a touch more of the backstory, Trudy and Hap were lovers from the late 60s, so we had a lot of really great kind of psychedelic love songs and good stuff in there. Um, and I was kind of thinking about that as how to kind of tell this little final chapter. And they're also in Texas, so the next band is from Texas, not vintage, but it kind of gives you that psychedelic thing. So let's roll that last clip. Cool, that's good, thanks. Did you know they share when? Nice. So that's where we ended up going. Did uh, with the 60s? We went with this. Awesome. We went with Black, Black Angels. Um, I was actually one of the first guys that ever licensed that band, so I had a relationship with the manager. And I called him up, I said, man, I think this is a really cool scene, can you help? I've got a dollar. He's like, yeah, 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 of course. We got you. And, you know, the director, showrunner, Jim Mickles, like, he just, he loved this because it had the dark psychedelic thing, it had lyrically run for the hills, it had Texas, it had probably the best tension for Trudy. So basically, she's in the van making a crossroads, she's, she's escaped. Is she going to go back and help the guys or is she going to run to Mexico? We don't know. Um, and so that lost song, we collectively felt kind of did a lot of great things that were different than what Chris Isaac did and in some ways were a bit more powerful. Um, and what's really interesting is my first instinct, I have to go find Chris Isaac sound-alikes. And I went out and I did that and I'm like, nah, can't do that, it's Chris Isaac. He's got his sound, like, do something original, do something creative, do something different. 
And that's when I started going down all these different avenues and finally ended up on this last clip that you just saw. So it's an interesting, a lot of thoughts go into the process of how you pick things, where they're from, what's their sound, what's the other sound of the show, what can you afford? What's the backstory of the characters too? What's the backstory? And it really was, it was this twisted, psychedelic thing and we'd done these really beautiful love songs between them and this was like the dark version that had lyrical content that wasn't just gibberish it actually said something and kind of underlined the storyline which takes a while this was probably I probably had 75 alts for this scene mm. that I started with and then whittled down to like 15 and then 10 and then like I'd throw it in the CD player and I'd run around town because I grew up listening to car radios to like what held up musically for something and then I my first question was like well, why don't we score this it's such a great opportunity like no we want a song I'm like okay we're going with a song um, let's go find a song so it's, there's a lot of different things that you take into account when you're pulling you know music for these scenes and TV's a bit different because you have overarching thematic material and this was a lot of 60s, a lot of psychedelic, a lot of country. Um, and this sort of pulled it all together. And this was kind of one of our last pieces in the in the scene. I can see how the conversations about not only the emotional tone that you want to strike in a certain scene come to bear when you're looking through different choices, but also um, trying to get inside the character's head. Like, is this woman going through is she kind of emotionally conflicted as she's driving and the last choice took me there more than the other two did and it brought me back into the story so when we're talking about creating an immersive experience for the audience you you have to think of those connections and you know as a as a director a producer or editor you're not always constantly aware of those choices so I can see how it's really helpful to have someone just completely focused on what kind of emotional connections do we want to make between the characters between the the character and the story where do we want to take the audience kind of psychologically and emotionally with the music that it the music did that for me and and I think the scene didn't necessarily go in that direction, but your choice took me there more than anything else, and I can see the power of musical choice really, really well. Plus, it's a really weird story about Eskimos. Well, that's kind of yeah. And that it's kind of like, like he kind of wants something thirteenth floor elevators weird. Like, what is this guy talking What's about? He on? Yeah. He's like sitting. Like, imagine being surrounded by this lunatic who sits down in between pot shots and tells you like this bizarro story. Like, that's interesting to think about. I don't know what he would be playing under that, but it kind of worked. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely worked. He, he might have been on something, though, I think. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Nancy, let's, let's, let's watch what you brought. Now, you brought something from what you're working on right now? No. Oh, no. no, no. I brought something. Actually, I brought something that Jim and I worked on. Yeah. I actually brought something that Jim and I worked on together, and I could, have asked, I could not have asked for a better intro because you said something immersive experience. Okay. So Jim and I worked on Black Swan together. Um, and uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the movie, but it is the story of a ballerina who is completely obsessed with the notion of dancing Odile and Odette, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. And um, 
Darren Aronofsky directed this psychological thriller. And uh, this was my first experience working with Darren, and I was really excited. And I remember the first time I saw some of the first footage, I had no idea what the hell was going on, but I knew it was going to be something special. And we went for this ride. What happens, the beginning of the third act starts with this nine-minute sequence when Nina is her name, played by Natalie Portman, ends up going out for an evening with a fellow ballerina played by Mila Kunis. And we learn in the film that this is the beginning of her psychological breakdown. And they, they go out and it's, I think I said it's a nine minute sequence, and they go out and they go to a lot of different places. And we needed source music in every single place. So Jim, the music supervisor extraordinaire, was sending me these amazing things and I was putting them all in. I mean, I must have cut, you know, 20, 25, 30 tracks that take us through the evening, options for every portion of the evening. And it wasn't entirely clear to Darren what he was looking for when we first started talking about this, but by the end, he knew that it all had to be Swan Lake, the ballet. So it took us a little while to, we marinated on this for a minute. And I was like, so parts of the ballet woven in. And he said, yes, she hears this everywhere she goes. She's completely obsessed with this. Right. <laughs> so the composer was really good friends with this amazing DJ, MC, Marianne Hobbs. And we sent her a, a request saying, can you send us a collection of like the artists who are doing EDM basically but beyond the fringe like who are tomorrow's you know Diplo and you know the guys better as yeah exactly Askmo who are tomorrow's people and we need a wide range and she sent us 25 people really really interesting really really interesting all over the map sent them to Darren, and interestingly enough, Jim and Darren and I all had really strong impulses toward the same 10 or 12 artists. And Darren was like, right, okay, how do we do this? <laughs> so this is back to your question about what is the role of a music editor? Whatever needs to be done. So Jim and I talked about it, and we thought, okay, so, we're going to have these 12 people. We're going to reach we're going to reach out to these 12 people and we're going to see who's interested in participating. All of them came back and said, "Yay. We wanted to give them as much creative flexibility as possible, but we didn't want them to have to listen. We wanted to make it as easy for them as possible." And we were focusing on the primary I called them the A themes from Swan Lake. And I said to Darren, I said, "What might be really interesting is if we take the strongest B themes and send, you know, like a 15 or a 20 or a 25 second snippet to these people and say, like, I'll send each one three. Pick whatever you respond to and send us whatever your version of that would be. And 10 of them did. And remarkably, f nobody picked the same clip. 
it was it was amazing and Jim and I are like in cahoots the whole time with this and we had a we had arranged for a day where we were going to have conference like phone calls they were all over the place there were guys who were getting ready for Glastonbury there were people in Iceland there was some guy in the woods in California he was the hardest person to get a hold of yeah, yeah they were exactly. They were all over the map. But they had names like Lorne and yeah. Sepulchre and Jake. Jake, just Jake. Jake. I'm like, Jake. dude. I'm like, what do I call you? He's like Jake. Jake. <laughs> <laughs> so it was this incredible journey that, we, and it was a very, you know, like we wanted. We just we had no just un, let it un, let it unfurl and see where it goes. So what I brought is the nine minute segment. We're not going to look at the whole thing. But we're all going to go on a little Easter egg hunt. So we're going to play three little sections of each one, the beginning of the night, the middle of the night, and the end of the night. And just so that you guys know, part of what Jim and I did to sort of corral this a little bit, border collie, woof, woof, um, you know, we listened to these 10 and we were like, we, were, we said, we, we talked about it for a while and we said, well, you know, this guy has a, a vibe that could be really nice at the beginning of the evening going into the second part of the evening. This guy's definitely the end of the evening. This guy's definitely when she's batshit crazy on the edge of completely, you know what I mean? So we had sort of isolated them and suggested to them, you know, we gave them the, the thing. We said, this is gonna, this is the arc of the evening and we think your thing really fits in the first half. And, you know, here are some clips, see what you respond to. And man, they went for it. They completely went for it. So I'm going to play, or rather Nate is going to play for you, um, sections from the clip. We're going to start with the beginning of the evening, the middle of the evening, and then the end of the evening. And at the end of the evening, she leaves the club. She's completely out of it. And we get into a cab, and there's a piece of score that comes in. And you're going to hear the score as we ended up editing it on the final mix stage because you asked me at one point how much flexibility do you have to work with the composer's music and do you change things so we'll play that and then I have another little clip of how the composer had written it and we'll talk about why we made the change so you can just roll from the beginning and play you know like I don't know 20 seconds and then bounce to the all the way back to the beginning yeah thanks Everybody hear Black Swan in that music? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. The Jake part, the very end, that was the only thing he sent us, and he literally took two notes from the bass line. <laughs> he didn't do anything else. We asked him, we asked him, could he develop it a little bit more? We never heard from him again. But it was okay. It was great. It totally served the purpose. Can you play the next clip? Now, th now this next scene, you're going to see the very end of the club, and you're going to see the way that the composer had written the score in the cab and then I'll talk a little bit about why we made the change. So we decided to delay the entrance of the queue. Uh, we found <laughs> that we, we just so much happened that night in that club that we just needed a breath. We need to process it. And it speaks a little bit to what I said earlier in my very technical terms about the music giving us a a chance to hit reset and pointing us in the right direction and being you know positioned the right way to take on what's happening next because what happens next is her is her complete and total crack up so we just needed a we literally needed a moment to stop to process to breathe you know we needed a, 
breath of fresh air just like she did. So that that was it was a very simple change, but it was it really affected the scene and how we were able to sort of go into the rest of the evening. Um, what I found too is that I was able to um, enter the tension between the two women a little bit yeah. more easily or at all because I wasn't already hearing some kind of guide track of it will almost felt kind of sentimental I was like oh and they're gonna fall in love or you know something or not fall in love but have some kind of relationship um instead I was able to discover it a little bit more which is engaging as far as being an audience member so that was really interesting um all right well let's Ben Holiday, you have a clip to show us and let's get you up on the board. This, I'm just going to quickly show this uh, scene from the film Drawing Home that I scored last year and Ian was the editor on it and maybe he should get the other mic so that uh, he can describe some of the what we were dealing with. Um, so this is a film, it's historical, it's set in the 20s and the 30s and so it needed a big orchestral traditional style score it you know I love doing modern stuff but this was not that film and uh, it's set in Canada it's set in Boston there's lots of sets and historical moments um, and basically in this this is a sequence where uh, the music basically had to carry uh, several scenes that are all connected and so there were a number of challenges I'll play it and then I can talk about it but basically the music needed to fill a lot of void I don't know how else to say it I mean there wasn't any dialogue in a lot of this in these scenes there wasn't any sound effects um, it was just kind of empty when I looked at the picture and the picture has a lot going on emotionally but it was really up to the music to to fill in those gaps and um, so you're about to see a, a hiking sequence which is uh, well let's see where did you start it the train I believe right yeah. so a little bit of context is these two lovers are sort of in uh, in an affair that isn't really viewed uh, kindly by their families, most notably the uh, the girl's mother, who expects her to marry a Rockefeller, and now she runs away to Banff with this artist that she met in art school, um, and she lied to her mother about where she is. Um, so there's a lot of like that undercurrent, um, and Rutger Hauer has given his protege, who is the uh, the the man in this relationship use of his cabin for this jaunt with his young lady uh, yes with, with his with his lover um so so we got to do a uh basically there's a big love making sequence where you don't see anything fun so the music's <laughs> got a really it's very tame it's very tame it's a family film so it really has to convey all the passion of what you're not seeing and um which I really loved it because yeah. it was like the imagination can do so much more there. And following that, there's a uh, breakfast scene the next morning where he proposes to her using maple syrup because yeah, he's Canadian. Like, get, get your tissues out, people. Yeah, this that's right. And so um, just kind of spinning all of these sequences together, you can see it. And then I'll talk a little bit more about it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that one, that sequence was, there were several of those in this film, believe it or not, that one only kinds of stands out because there were a lot of places like that where the music just had to carry the show kind of. That was a, that was a bear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we talk about, uh, one of the things that gets talked about is how can music not be over the top or corny or that kind of thing and I think of it almost like a dial where at one end the music is completely up front like what you just saw and it's carrying everything and then and on the opposite side uh, music is barely noticed it the acting is what's really carrying things or the story etc and so often these two are juxtaposed if the acting is really powerful or it's a really over the I won't say over-the-top performance, but a high-energy performance. And the music is also really high-energy. You can get into the zone of it being over-the-top and corny. So it's almost like you're kind of um, doing the opposite often of what you're seeing on on screen or, or what's in the film. So um, one thing that you didn't get from this clip was that all these themes had been established in their respective scenes. And so I was just kind of spinning them all together and because this is one of those moments in the film that we've been waiting for where these characters are finally getting it on and we have been waiting a long time uh, in this story yeah that's right they have to go on a hike uh, which they've done several times um, so yeah yeah uh, did you have anything to add to that Ian? yeah well you so there was a bigger hike earlier uh, <laughs> where we made a lot more of the of the hike, but um, this was more about the consummation. Um, but yeah, the choice of dropping at at for long stretches, the choice of almost dropping everything else out completely was both um, because there wasn't much there. Um, I mean, rather than like foleying hand hand on flesh and like lip smack, which would be completely tasteless in, in the case of this movie. Um, it, it just became an obvious like crackling fire, fire, maybe a little bit of that, but the rest was all was all on music. Um, and then earlier, when you're outside, especially in that location that you, you just mentioned, you know, it's so vast that the music had to capture that. You fill those hills with horns, and you just you know you <laughs> let it really speak to the the space that you're That's in. Right, not the one. And then you have this charming little cabin that you know there's a lot of like it's just all the charm in the world, but no like real nothing to it. Um, and what's happening there? The, you know the music had to had to get so there, there's this. Because of the forbidden nature of what they're doing, the love theme has a little bit of dissonance in it. And, right. And that, I think, is what keeps it from being like this really super cheesy musical thing that like completely just rams it down your throat. No pun intended. Um, but, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but like, you know, the, the, the dissonance in that cue is one of my is is one of my favorite things you've you've done for the movie ben and that was thank like, you that was like that, that, that what, that's what made it like you know considering where we end up with mother finding out that the man she thought her her daughter was going to marry is marrying someone else um that's where it, it all kind of blows up in her face so it was a nice foreshadow there 
Thanks, Ian. And actually, uh, it's interesting because to me, of everything that I write, uh, happy stuff is the hardest <laughs> to deal with by far. When the on-screen scene is that, you know, syrupy sweet, and the music needs to, you know, I was being urged to kind of take that approach. That was harder doing that breakfast scene than all the other stuff because the other stuff I can add to all this emotional color and it's it's straightforward in that way uh adding dissonance in that but happy stuff is just it's really always challenging we have half half the country doesn't believe in love right and half of it does and you don't want all the as I say you don't want all the men to get up and leave the theater during those scenes so um the blending of emotions is one of the things that can kind of keep people engaged in a story and uh it was really it was hard to do that i hit like a minor chord when they kissed uh just to you don't even really hear it because it's an orchestra playing it but just little subtle things like that to kind of give it some more harmonic color and stuff like that that you make a really good point that kind of complexity the harmonic complexity um brings so oh sorry brings so much to a score and, and I Jim and I talk about this we try to find that in songs too yeah um, but that's something that I always look for in temping it's not uncommon if it, when I'm doing a temp score for me to add a string layer that brings a little rub a little dissonance to something it just it just brings a level of complexity that um, I find gives a little more satisfaction. Yeah, it adds a, a little more sophistication to things that, again, half the world doesn't mind this stuff. They believe in, they're still listening to ballads. They love love songs. If you've traveled, you're like, wow, I haven't heard this since the 80s. You know, the people believe in love still. This is so cool. But there's, <laughs> but, but. You can never underestimate a dark cello. Yeah. Like a lot of time when a cue's not working, I've got my little folder of dark cellos. And I just dark cello always works. Because it gives you the balance, right? You get, I'm going to ask you for that. Yeah. <laughs> so having, trying to find something as a composer, you, you know, I don't want to overthink this, but it's more of a thing that's felt is that you want something that's going to appeal to both people, the people that are rooting for the love story and the people that have a little more level of cynicism about love stories too. Yeah, skepticism. You have to do the material justice. You're not going to make a film like that into Black Swan. You're not going to make it into anything edgy. It is right down the middle of the road. My parents flipped out with joy when they knew I was working on this, when I was studying this period piece. Um, and it's something I actually learned from a few of my experiences as an assistant. Most recently with Tim Squires, we did Winter's Tale, which is the same kind of thing, like right down the middle of the road, borderline cheesy at times. You can't really get, you, you're not gonna force anything crazy into that um, emotionally, but you, you, you take the opportunities that you have so that when you have to turn on the syrup, you haven't lost people. So right. it's almost like a relief, like because what you did with the lovemaking scene, then when we get to the man pouring his proposal in syrup on pancakes, you're almost ready for that to kind of lighten up a little bit. So. 
Let's let's open this up to um, Q and A's. I'm sure some of some of this conversation has provoked some maybe specific questions. Maybe I don't know if anybody's working on something right now that you would like to get some insight on, um, or if any of the conversation has sparked questions about um, how to handle something. But we've got some really really amazing minds on stage, and just wanted to open this up to anybody who has a question. Yeah, let me, can we hand you a mic just so? So on the music side of things, I, I do a little composing myself and um, looking into doing more film. But uh, when you're faced with something that open, Ben, like you presented a lot of themes and mo motives that, you know, like maybe we don't have established for us since we just saw that scene. But how do you go about picking those? And do you have sort of the people around you assisting you with that? Or do you really kind of take it upon yourself to really pick and choose where those land well the themes when i'm writing them are it's something i do all alone at the piano kind of deal and i spend the most amount of time of everything i do on on that uh, because once your themes are down you can use them in so many ways you can invert them or use little fragments of them and just like what nancy was showing you can uh, they're just uber useful but you have to spend the time to create them in the first place uh in this film it became clear that certain certain uh how shall i say it uh, situations between the characters needed themes that some of the characters needed themes themselves um uh, me and ian talked a lot late at night on the phone you know i call him at two in the morning and pick his brain about this stuff and uh he had done a brilliant job temping this stuff as well and uh although that there wasn't a lot of consistency of theme in the temp so i think it was more just our conversations that we yeah, we established this where i needed yeah that's where it, that's there wasn't it wasn't it was a great temp as individual cues and there were there were some i mean there it it, it played but it lacked the cohesion that yeah i mean i'm i love themes i love how cohesive it can make i mean those are three totally different scenes and so to be able to kind of spin them together um it just it, it feels very satisfying to get to do that because you've done all the hard work of writing them and you've already established them in the other scenes and uh so uh yeah it's a collaborative thing if you already have an idea with a director when you're sitting there at the spotting session it can be a great place to say you know oh if we have a theme for this character maybe here's where we could use that um, with all of this stuff there's the idea of what works and then there's what actually works so you have the in your head you've got this idea of like oh this theme i'm gonna write this theme and it's gonna go so great here and it's gonna so but then you can end up putting up against the picture and like oh all right i i either have to rework this or not use this theme or write another theme or write a variation or something else i haven't thought of so there's a lot of problem solving just dramatically above and beyond the musical aspects thanks yeah any other questions for people here tonight while you've got a moment? Yeah. What is your ideal time to be brought on in the 22 to 26 week post schedule? I mean, in terms of when you actually, each of you, when you come on. 
Well, I'm probably the earliest. Well, it depends. It depends on the filmmaker. Um, a lot of the times, they may have worked with a composer, and they would like to work with them again. So we're all brought on at script level. Usually, come on around assembly to start. You know, the rough assembly to start getting a sense to be thinking. Uh, uh, it depends. It depends on the director. For instance, the project I'm working on right now, I was on in the last week of principal photography. That that's a first for me. Darren likes to start. Th Darren is always thinking about music, so he's generally the director with whom I begin to work the earliest, and I'm usually on during rough assembly. V more typically, I come on probably in between week two and five of director's cut. That's a little more typical. And then of course there are the projects who call you up and they're like, we have four weeks in our budget for a music editor and our mix is two weeks long. So we're going to bring you on two weeks before the final. That usually doesn't work out very well. Well, it's not that it's too hard. It's just, they just need a pair of elbows. Right. You know, at that point, you just need somebody to babysit the mix. So don't pay me my rate because you're not getting anything that I bring to the table. Just bring somebody who's going to babysit the mix. But how many weeks will you go? Eight, nine, ten? <laughs> uh, it's closer to about 16. Well, not normally. Every project is different. Like this one is going to be a little bit longer. Darren's tend to be a little bit longer. It's... I think, you know, it average is probably a safe number is 12 to 14. Yeah, I always think of having like three months. Yeah, three, four months. I've been lucky. I've been able to, I've been able to be creatively involved earlier th than, than, a, yes. I've been and the reason lucky. she's brought on so early is because she is an incredible artist and can really carve out a temp score. There are a lot, no, it's true. There are a lot of great music editors. There's a lot of great technicians. There's a lot of wonderful people that can babysit and mix. Her genius truly comes when, um, and folks like her, not to give you all that weight, it's too much pressure. But the genius really does happen working with the editorial, with the director to really find the right sounds for the film. And then to also go out and find potentially, if there's not a composer already tied in, to find that right composer um, that you know can deliver a certain sound or more importantly, a certain emotion or a certain kind of linchpin for, the, for whatever the project is. I'm on literally one week after production wrap, after they finish the, the rough assembly, after production editorial's done, they've done the one week and then, and you'll be on ideally the entire so you have to be on the entire time. You can't sometimes if they hire a out is what I mean. That's what oh yes. Well I mean listen, if a project has to go on hiatus, you know, that's I, I, I work with them. If they call me and they say, We really, really want you I listen, you know the process, the picture process, and you know there are gonna be times where they're figuring out something in picture and I'm gonna be sitting around not that busy. I'm not going to take that from production if it's a strain on their budget anyway. I will I will absolutely go on hiatus. I'm not precious about anything like that at all. Absolutely. I you know, wherever it works. It it Sometimes it works out that they'll say we need to go on hiatus and then things are just kind of rolling along and and 
Ian is like, boy, it'd be really great to have Nancy stick around and we figure out how to do that. That's, you know, every project is a little bit different and it, a lot of it is determined by the budget. Um, the one thing I will say about starting so early is it's so important to be sensitive about where the picture is in the process and not getting, not letting music get ahead of the picture because we will end up circling each other and we'll never get in sync. And that's a disaster because as Ben will speak to, as Ian can speak to, as Jim can speak to, you have a finite amount of creative energy. And if I put myself in a position where I'm having to recreate temp one, temp two, temp three, come up with different temps because I'm not in sync with the picture. And because of that, the musical ideas are not jiving. When if they would be ready three weeks later and that's when the musical idea that's when they're ready to hear the musical idea that's when the, that's when it's time to go in and that temp would have been perfect at that time frame that's something you got to be you got to be really mindful of and that's that's where a very open dialogue with the editor the editor is man he is he is he is he is the reason I can do my job and I want to add add to that too that what makes music overall different than sound effects is that sound effects can you can pull out any piece and usually the whole thing still works or you might swap in pieces but music's like architecture if you take out the foundation it's so easy to take out the foundation then suddenly the whole thing doesn't work so you have to build the entire thing back up and so as much as we're used to experiencing music in this kind of free-flowing way when we hear live music, the creation of a film score, be it with a music editor, a music supervisor, a composer, you're dealing with a lot of slow building uh, and um, finding the right puzzle pieces. And it can't usually just, everything can't just be swapped in and out. If you pull out the cello line, sometimes that's the whole piece. So... Um, because of that, you have to kind of build into the schedule enough time to make sure that everyone's happy with it. One of the big things in original scoring is that everyone hears the music scene by scene by scene. And then it's like we're coming up against a recording session with an orchestra and, oh, my God, we haven't heard the whole thing. This happens all the time. We haven't heard the whole thing in context. And then there's a whole round of notes from that. And the composer has to go back and change, you know, 30% of the score. It's a really, um, at that point, it's a really stressful situation. So you have to kind of um, build all of that into the schedule. And there's an on-running joke, I know, in the, in, at mixes that the sound editors all go to lunch and the music editor sits there through lunch editing, even though they're not supposed to. But it, it happens a lot because... The music editor has to fix something and it ta it's it's not the same as sound effects where it can be quickly fixed yeah i start early i'm i'm usually i mean you know like i said earlier anywhere from script to three weeks out from a final mix or sometimes two weeks out from a final mix and there's no composer so i'm kind of a wild card especially if there's something like written in or like part of the crucial to the story like a performance of something well yeah and we didn't get to touch much on the on-camera but just quickly you know for on-camera music what's really important is um of course have all your clearances put together 
um, aside from a music supervisor and a music editor, a really, really, really key player in all your on camera is having a great music producer. Um, and you should actually, I would recommend taking a little of that extra budget and doing pre-records, going and actually recording the songs um, in a studio with a, in a controlled environment that has full separation of all the instruments and vocals so that when you're doing take after take after take, it's uniform and sync isn't slipping or there's a truck going by or all of these things. And also uh, what a great engineer producer brings to the mix is a lot of the times it'll be an actor singing and maybe they're not an accomplished musician. You need someone who can do what we call comping, which is to take the best little itty bitty takes of an entire song and kind of perfect them without putting like crazy auto-tune and making it sound artificial. I can't stress enough, if you're doing live music, it should be done to playback. Um, and that's why they bring me on early to get all of that set up way ahead of schedule. So Phil, when there's playback, you would be involved throughout production then. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, be there on the day. I'm on the day, I'm on the set, I'm with the playback. And then a lot of the times you'll have professional musicians in the studio that are playing all the parts, but they don't go on camera because they're not actors. So you have to get all the music written out or at least recordings of each individual part so the musicians, we call them sideline musicians, can actually mime along and be in the right place on the guitar or the piano or the voice. That all has to be practiced and rehearsed. And you need to have at least, you know, a couple of weeks lead time. So, you know, in a perfect world, if it's a feature, I try to have all of that done a couple, three weeks ahead of production. So it's pretty early. Okay. I want, oh, do we have one more? Yes. There's some young people in the audience who are... Here, let me, let's see if we can just run that up. We can We're here to learn a little bit about this business and as someone who's very interested in young people and creating a diverse environment in our business which certainly needs to be addressed can you guys speak to how you got in the business a little bit just briefly and then how you can create a pathway for young people to get to where you are it's fabulous that we're all doing what we're doing but i don't know if the young people i mean maybe right. they don't even want to do this for right I'd like to jump right in there. So this is my second career. I was in corporate America. I was trained as a classical. I had played classical at a very early age and went down the road where you rehearsal, recital, 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 and completely rebelled by the time I was 17, so walked away from music entirely. Came back to it after about 10 years and went and got my master's degree at NYU. And that's where I met the most amazing person Susanna Parrish, who is a music editor, extraordinary music editor, incredible talent, a beautiful person, amazing storyteller. She's still to this day is teaching me about being a better person, about a better being a better friend. I hear her voice in my head every day at work. She's incredible. I had the extraordinary fortune of being her assistant for almost 10 years. That does not exist anymore. And Michael Berry is the person who asked the question, and he's an amazing mixer, and he and I have worked on some films together before. And I, if that, if 
if that's the one thing that is the if I were ever to get involved with more involved with these professional organizations than I am now, I don't have a lot of time. But that would be the reason to fight for the studios to give us music editors the opportunity to have assistance. It is not in the budget. That is the first thing. Well, it's not the first thing that goes, but it. I can't tell you. Any time now, I get a phone call. I'm working on a film right now that I should absolutely, they should absolutely be able to guarantee me assistant around the time we start having previews. Absolutely not. Won't do it. Because of a lawsuit where a production intern worked on a film with the hopes that he would be able to go into post-production, specifically into music editing, or sorry, into picture editing. That never happened because you just don't go into picture editing. The film was a very small budget film. He worked on it as an unpaid intern because he wanted the relationships in the industry. And the film went on to make an, a, a lot of money. He sued the studio. And he won. Every single studio now, Whenever I ask them, if I can bring in a student who is going to get school credit, won't let me do it. It is harder than ever for young people to come in and spend time with me. I have people who would just love to, and I, you know, I would pay them. I would pay somebody to come in and organize my library. I would pay somebody to keep me fed and watered, you know, on these crazy 14-hour days. The only reason that I can do what I do is because I was able to sit with Susanna for eight, ten years while she worked with, while, while, right in between Susanna and Roman Polanski and Mike Nichols and Jonathan Demme and hear the way these men think and understand what their take on storytelling is. That's the only reason I can do my job. And I want to fight for this because it's not right. And more importantly, what we all do collectively, this filmmaking, it isn't something that you can just do. It's a craft. And we have to protect this by ensuring that younger generations know how to do this. It's, a, you know, we have to protect these apprenticeships. So how to get into the business I don't have the answer. Uh, picture's a little bit easier because it's a bigger department. Sound is a little bit easier because it's a bigger department. Some of the facilities, you know, they're supporting, you know, sound teams. You know, if you can get in on, they're all trying to do internships. They're all trying to, you know, develop these programs where people can start to just at least meet people. It's harder than ever, I am very sorry to say, but it's the truth. And I, I don't know if you have any ideas about what to do about it, but it's, it's not, I don't know who the next generation of music editors are. It starts with a conversation, so we should be having yeah. a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know who the next generation is. On that sour note. All right, I'm going to make it a sweeter note, though. So I got into the, I mean, I was in high school. I was the mixtape guy. I was a radio DJ in college. I wanted to be John Coltrane. I wasn't. I went to Manhattan School of Music. I was classically trained. And I was good for, like, cruise ships and wedding gigs. And I was like, no, that's not going to happen. And fortunately for supervisors, I came up under a wonderful gentleman named Barry Cole, um, who... He basically didn't like doing the businessy stuff because he's just a really kind person and not a haggler. And I'm kind of all over, I, I'm a brawler, 
you know, I like to fight over stuff. So for supervision, there's definitely more space for young people to get into it. The problem is technology has made it so simple not to have an assistant. Mm. Like we used to have kids burning CDs in all day long and making playlists and do and running and like technology has kind of taken a lot of that out. And unfortunately, as nice as, you know, a lot of these young kids are, and I've brought too long, you know, Gabe Hilfer, who's mm. now going gangbusters in Los Angeles, you know, we've brought along some great people. Where they started and where they were needed, just technology has kind of made it irrelevant. And you can't have, you know, an 18, 19 year old kid calling up Sony and Universal being like, so how much for this song? It's just, they don't have that, seasoned kind of uh, negotiation skills. So there is more opportunity in the supervision side, but you also have to be a deal maker to start. So I think part of it is certainly where we sit, all of us. I got called from a really talented film editor who's been doing more kind of internet and you know spots and stuff. He's like, I really want to get into film. I can't get anyone to take me on as an apprentice because it's the position is gone. And I think part of it's technology and the part of it's budget and part of it's just the way we're set up, but we have to figure it out because we'll all move on at some point, hopefully to watching grass grow. Thank you so much. Yeah. I want to I wanna, um, thank all of our guests tonight. Uh, Ian Bloom, Jim Black, Nancy Allen, Ben Holiday, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you Technicolor Postworks New York for hosting this. And uh, this will be up on iTunes shortly. Thank you so much. And we'll have a drink outside if you're inclined.